0: Afterthought on CKUW 95.9 FM. My name is Erica Wee and I'm Lynn Fernandez. We'd love to hear from you. Please email us at afterthought that's one word at ckuw.ca. Hi everybody, welcome back to Afterthought. My name is Erica Weeb, and this is part two of a conversation we started last week about the history of Southern Manitoba Mennonites, and whether there might be something in the history that helps us understand some of the current dynamics in Southern Manitoba, including responses to the COVID pandemic like vaccine hesitancy and anger over government mandates. Last week we were focusing on the Russian experience. The area that we now know as Ukraine was then a part of Russia, and in fact the Mennonites lived, lived very close to the Donbass, which of course now is in the middle of a war zone. So there were several groups of, of Mennonites that lived there at that time. In the mid-19th century, one of these groups um, decided that they wanted to leave because they were feeling that with the change in government, their strong belief in exemption from military service and the desire to have their own education system was being threatened. So they wanted to leave. Um, My own ancestors uh, did not leave at that time. They thought that they could find a way to work with the local government while maintaining those same values that they held of exemption from military service. And having their own education system. So they stayed. They didn't immigrate until after the Russian Revolution, when under the communist government there was hardship of various kinds, including famine, uh, general lawlessness, and uh, ultimately something approaching genocide, with various groups, including the Mennonites, being targeted, sent off to labor camps, murdered, etc., etc. But this other group decided to leave in the 1870s, and that is the group that ended up in southern Manitoba, as well as other places in North America. And that's where we're going to pick it up today. My guest for these two episodes is Ralph Friesen. Ralph grew up in Steinbach. He considers himself to be an amateur historian, in particular about Mennonite history, and he's written a couple of books, actually, that really inform this issue. One of them is called Between Earth and Sky, Steinbach, The First Fifty Years, and that's really the one that I use mostly as a reference for these two conversations. So I'm going to start by asking you, Ralph, uh, what it was that um, attracted this group of Mennonites to southern Manitoba?
1: Manitoba was one option, had other options, and they did look at them. Of the 18,000 that I mentioned, uh, who immigrated in the 1870s and early 80s, the majority actually went to the United States. This whole territory, Nebraska, Kansas, Manitoba, uh, had been investigated or explored by 12 so-called delegates who had been sent by by different denominations actually uh, among the mennonites in ukraine so it was partly a question of uh, for the mennonites which is most favorable for us and those who chose let's say nebraska what was favorable for them was milder climate reasonably good land and pretty good assurances of they had to pay, but not much, something like $3 for 160 acres. So uh, probably the milder climate, maybe the fact that it was a Republican government, uh, that is a a Republic, mattered to them. Although to me, that one is questionable. As far as Manitoba is concerned, one Mennonite advocate for Manitoba was Jacob Shantz, who was actually an old order uh, Ontario Mennonite. He had interested himself in, the, in this migration project, and he uh, put forward Manitoba as a destination, and, and people responded to him, because he offered. He also offered loan assurances, and, those, and they did come through. The Old Order of Mennonites did loan money, did lend money to uh, the immigrants, as well as the, the government did. So when they investigated Manitoba or explored Manitoba to be precise southern Manitoba it was both uh, what later became called the east and west reserve on either side of the red river you know the, the west side of that was quite favorable the land in the area of Altona Winkler is good rich agricultural land the land in the Steinbach area not so much but uh, it offered more moisture there was there was a lot of rivers and creeks or creeks rather and wells and low lying areas and good hayland and and bush as well so the opportunity for timber so they weighed all these things and ultimately uh looked at what they could get from the government with their privilegium, which is the word privilege latinized i suppose what would be the agreement and the fact that the dominion government was actually backed by uh, we, uh, Canada was a colony like there was a monarch behind that i think re- re- reassured them they were accustomed to dealing with monarchy all their throughout all their migrations before that and to them but this might have been an attraction to them as well
0: and then you talk in your book about, you know, there was a lot of hardship when they first got here, right? Yeah. And uh, it was actually the Metis people who helped them out a lot. Yeah. Can you say more about that?
1: The Dominion of Canada had agreed to, uh, under pressure from Louis Riel, the formation of the province of Manitoba. That was only a few years before, in 1870, through the Manitoba Act. So the Metis. According to the Manitoba Act, we're allocated 1.4 million acres of land in Manitoba in the newly formed province. The distribution of that land became a whole other story. But essentially it was land along the rivers, river lots. They had agreed to this. So they were, in a sense, they were able to say to themselves, well, at least we've got our place to be, we as Métis people. The East Reserve, where Steinbeck is, was on the edge of some of that land. The present community of St. Anne was Métis. Maybe descendants of the Métis are still there. And on the Seine River. But uh, south from that, the land was reserved for the Mennonites. And so they became, in that sense, neighbors to the Métis, but they were not occupying the same Space exactly, but then they would inevitably interact with these neighbors, and I think we can extend that to La Broquerie, possibly Saint Pierre,
0: Saint Malo.
1: They would interact with them, and uh, the, the there are several accounts among the Mennonites who were uh, of that originating original immigrant uh, venture talking about the hospitality of the Métis. how like you, you could go to them, go to a household somewhere for wanting something and they wouldn't let you go without coming in, sitting down, having a meal. I mean that's such a, uh, I'm not sure what even to think about that because I, on the one hand I think that's wonderful, they were they, they were that kind of warm people, on the other hand did they know who they were welcoming? Mm-hmm. Uh, they they had a, an idea certainly that this was, they, well they certainly knew that these were settlers who came in to take over the contiguous land and and farm it but that didn't prevent them from showing extraordinary hospitality and and showing their Mennonite neighbors like here's where the gooseberries grow here's where the choke you can have choke cherries these might have been things not known to them in Ukraine i don't know if gooseberries or choke cherries are found in Ukraine at all but they were important to the sustenance of the immigrants
0: well, yeah, it is very interesting, considering, you know, the whole history of indigenous peoples. Uh, I mean, and it's yeah. not, it's not um, just the southern Manitoba Mennonites that were unbeknownst yeah. to them involved in displacing indigenous people. You, say, you yeah. say unbeknownst to them, but I would say in a way they knew. Mm-hmm. I mean, as, they, as in a way they knew when they
1: came to the, the steppes of Ukraine, yeah. they were displacing no guy. The indigenous people there ah. they just i don't think it was a broad awareness yeah not a deep one either yeah but certainly some of the before immigrating the russian mennonites raised fears and questions about the indians yeah and, you know uh so and who's will, will we meet with trouble
0: yeah
1: uh, they were concerned about that even in the 1880s where there would be uh, really cold weather, and the trees would crack, some some of the settlers were, were frightened thinking these are gunshots and the Indians are coming to get us. So uh, yeah. they had some knowledge,
0: uh-huh. they just
1: preferred to push it out of consciousness.
0: Right. So again, there were splits that developed right, amongst the Mennonite settlers there, based on what kind of behavior is acceptable and what's not acceptable. I mean, in your book, you talk about things like four-part harmony, which that's what has led us to develop a lot of musical chops, I think, uh, in where I came from, as well as the use of instruments in church. So as some people believe that this was too worldly, that kind of thing, do you want to talk about some of those things?
1: This is part of the vision of the founder of the Kleine Gemeinde uh, that we mentioned before, Klaus Reimer. Uh, and his concern about worldliness.
0: Mm-hmm. His
1: concern about worldliness extended to what I I don't know if he articulated it this way, but it's extended to that which is beautiful. If it is beautiful, and, but doesn't have a use, then it's questionable. It entices us away. <laughs> entices us away from the worship of God. Right. We're we're stealing God's glory if we get too involved with uh, beauty in any aspect, whether we're talking now music or personal appearance or art, uh, alles verboten. No, we, uh, these are all suspect and you know, could be traps laid by the devil.
0: Yes. Well, that leads directly into my next question. And I want to quote you from your book. And this is what you say. The Kalanikamayda had been founded on the principle that a truly Christian community felt and practiced deep humility this earnest interpretation served as a guard against arrogance, but also contributed to an ethic of constant striving in matters spiritual and economic. One was never good enough; one was always conscious of falling short of the mark and of the necessity for penance of some kind. The result was a certain anxiety and a certain joylessness in everyday life um, I, I, end of quote so a grim bunch of people. And I mean, <laughs> some of this, I mean, can be, I, I mean, I think all kinds of Mennonites can relate a little bit, at least to that statement. And not even yeah. just Mennonites, but, you know, I have Roman Catholic yeah. friends who who would say the same kind of thing. And I, I guess there must be, I would think, mental health issues that come out of this kind of ethos. Would Would you say that's true?
1: Well, first of all, I want to say there was an offsetting factor, and that was humor, especially humor expressed in the low German language. You know, That doesn't get into the history books, but it was always part of the people. Yeah. So at this parallel to the paragraph you mentioned, uh, I would say there was there was also and even a subversive kind of humor or ironic or undercutting of authority kind of low German laughter that uh, tried to, I think, wasn't... Not a conscious way, but a way of counterbalancing all that grimness. So there was that.
0: Interesting, too. yeah.
1: Um, but the idea that you're not good enough and you need to strive harder will certainly produce anxiety. Uh, maybe a combination of anxiety and depression. So there was a there was also a word for that in pioneer times, which was Zelen angst. You you have fear for your soul. Uh huh. It. it had to do with your perceived eternal destination, heaven or hell. But, you know, some people got obsessed with that. They, they, like, I I don't know where I'm going when my life is over. And it paralyzed them, as you can imagine it might.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, yeah, there are, uh, I, would, I don't know what percentage of Mennonites of that time, of that pioneer era, suffered from mental health issues, as opposed to The rest of the population, Mm -hmm. there's no way of knowing, but yeah, this would have been an issue. It was an issue.
0: Right. Although, of course, they wouldn't have called it at the the time. At a certain point, a person by the name of John Holdeman arrived on the scene in southern Manitoba. It seemed to me from your book that this was maybe a bit of a turning point. Can you talk about what his influence was?
1: It is a turning point. Haldeman was invited to Steinbach and Kleefeld and other uh, southern Manitoba communities by the bishop of the Kleinigeminden, the Manitoba bishop of the Kleine Gemeinde, Peter Taves. He actually had been in correspondence with Haldeman, who was uh, from Kansas and before that from Ohio. Also had Mennonite roots, but more Swiss Mennonite roots. Uh, Haldeman perceived and. Uh, uh, well, going back to Bishop Taves, I think he was concerned about his flock, he was concerned about the Gemeinde, that they were, while not not so much worldly, they were spiritually dead, in his estimation. Maybe it's no surprise, if you don't allow four-part harmony, that's gonna happen. Haldeman came with a message to these benighted Manitobans, saying, well, you're wrong, you, you, your belief is wrong, and there is only one true church, which I happen to be leading. You yeah. yeah well, you're in need of spiritual renewal. So he spoke well, he spoke uh, persuasively, and uh, he also, Mennonites didn't trust this, but he also spoke of dreams and visions that he had. His appeal was strong enough that about a half of the clinic of decided, yes, you're right, we want to belong to the one true church, and you sound like you're it, we'll go with you. And okay. so they split into what became known as the Haldeman or Church of God in Christ.
0: And how would you describe that particular group?
1: They also took pains to separate themselves even more from the world than by virtue of mm-hmm. the men having to wear beards and the women having to wear a head covering. Um, other than that, pretty hard to tell. They continued to function within the society. I mean, they were all re- related to all these kind of minded people they had left, so they they continued to relate and they continued to function, and as part of the, say as Fitz and Steinbeck, they were still part of the economy and they were in business. They just kept this kind of separation. Well, Mennonites as a group are good at that of being separate while still involved somehow, mm-hmm. and this was just like one mini manifestation of that. It was, it was rending though. The community was really torn by it, and families were torn apart. Right. So. It had an effect, you know, we wondered earlier about Midnight's in southern Manitoba and deep conservatism or anti-vaxxer yeah. sentiments and the polarities that developed yeah in, in that kind of, so polarities, the polarities then in that context were as painful, maybe more so.
0: Yeah, so. We should get into, in the about 10 remaining minutes that we have, about the commerce that was going on. And, and uh, possibly because it wasn't the best farming land, uh, the Maronites were pretty entrepreneurial, hey? Eh? They started up businesses. Can you talk a little bit about that and relationship to how Steinbach grew?
1: So I ask myself, is there such a thing as entrepreneurial genius? Because they seem to possess that. <laughs> and here again the original kind of vision division was anti-entrepreneurial. Yeah. In the sense that's, of, that's the irony uh, of it. Yeah. If you make too much money, if you become too wealthy, you'll become too attached to the world. It'll be worldly again. So mm-hmm. you have to so stay on the land, be a farmer, and they actually had prohibitions in while well, still in Russia against uh, saying having a there was one person who was allowed to have a store to merchandise only one. And he was allowed that because of physical disability that didn't permit him to farm. So in the new context of the new world, these restrictions are still in place, but they are under way more pressure and they start to lift. Is very soon, within 10 years, Steinbach was being identified by a correspondent from the German newspaper in Winnipeg as an industrial town with smokestacks and saws buzzing and steam engines chugging and so on. And, and so yeah, so they, based on machine works, on lumbering, on blacksmithing, uh, they turned into a, a manufacturing center and uh, also merchandising, general stores. They burst into that. The church tried, but eventually proved powerless to stop that surge of entrepreneurial energy.
0: Yes, the way you put it in your book is, Steinbach's guiding spirit would not be culture, either the Mennonite or any other kind. It would instead be what it had already been for many years, material progress, the buying and selling of goods and services. And then another quote, the spirit of simplicity and separation from the world gradually ebbed out of the picture to the point where it can hardly be recognized, economic growth is still the great expectation and the goal for Steinbach.
1: Yeah, and Steinbach, and I'm not sure in what measure, but in some measure today, many Steinbachers of who are descendants of the original pioneers have adopted the American prosperity gospel uh-huh. idea, just to pile on top of their ability, their whatever entrepreneurial abilities they have. Now it is almost proof of your Christianity to drive a big car and have a big house.
0: Well, It's It's perverse.
1: (laughs) I I don't agree with it.
0: It's just so interesting how a uh, cultural and religious group that fervently believed in simplicity, modesty, Mm -hmm. separation from the world would take such a U-turn, and that is the accepted norm now.
1: Gerald Wright has written a history of Seinbach called No Place Like It, or is there any place like it? And then he posits that there was this pent up energy in the community. And when it was able to be released, it just um, exploded uh, in uh, commerce. It's like almost a Freudian view of human beings. They've got this bottled up thing that needs to be expressed somehow. I don't know, but uh, once once that genie was out of the bottle, there was no turning back.
0: And going back to my original question, how is it that the southern Manitoba Mennonites uh, were more conservative than what I grew up understanding? I mean, I I feel like that's the answer. Somewhere along the line, capitalism became the the thing. I mean, not yeah. saying that Saskatchewan Mennonites are a bunch of socialists. Not by any stretch.
1: <laughs> if only.
0: Yeah, that's right, although there are, you know, there have been NDP members of Parliament that came from Saskatchewan Mennonites. Am I right that that might be part of the difference there? They just, they just kind of gave in to the whole capitalist model. Yeah, uh, yeah they
1: did. I mean, one of Steinbach's maybe the most famous business person, businessman, was uh, A.D. Penner, uh, a car salesman. And his whole personality, his whole style was contrary to any teaching of humility or modesty or anything like it he was out there he was a marketer he was a sales personified and celebrated it and in many ways a likable person like extroverted and learned to fly a plane at age 80 or something like a character uh-huh. but okay we will We'll lift all those restrictions. You know, I could add one more thing, and that is I think one of the phenomena that happened was the arrival in the 1920s, 30s in Steinbeck of uh, an evangelist named George Schultz from Chicago. And he proposed that business people have an important role in Christianity, of propagating Christianity, whoever you are. But if you're a business person, that's good because you have more opportunity to influence people through whatever you put... Bibles in the glove boxes of the new car they sell, or whatever it is, that's your role. Steinbeck adopted that.
0: Yeah, that would explain a lot right there.
1: Yeah. So and then that becomes connected actually with being a good Christian. Mm-hmm. Like you need to witness to others. And what better way of witnessing, I mean, witnessing and, or you need to be a missionary. That all needs money. This all requires capital.
0: And so that comes with sort of a suspicion of government. Government
1: will put in regulations. Government will slow you down. Government will prevent you from developing something.
0: I wanted to ask you about this. In the 1920s, there was another group of Mennonites that immigrated to Canada. Actually, my ancestors who ended up in Saskatchewan were part of that group. But there was another part of that group that ended up in southern Manitoba,
1: in my mind, we're talking about the Rusländer. Yeah, that's that what is I'm your talking about. Yes. yes. So, I mean, we're all the same people, but you're different because you're Rusländer and we're Kanadier.
0: And you're but, what? Sorry?
1: Uh, we are Kanadier. Oh. You're Rusländer. This makes a difference. You should pay attention to all these differences. Okay. <laughs> we might forget what <laughs> separates us. Uh, the Rusländer, coming to Steinbach particularly, had an enormous impact, and I would attribute much of that to one family, the Volt family. Two of the women influenced education. One, uh, one uh, founded a kindergarten in Steinbach. Another was a key developer of the first hospital in Steinbach, so healthcare. And uh, they also brought in culture to a level that Steinbach hadn't previously known. Suddenly, people are listening to the Metropolitan Opera on the radio. This was previously not known. Well, As well, then, Arnold Dick, the editor of the Steinberg Post, the writer of the Bua stories, and oh, uh, right. a, a powerful influence on the community that way, but met with uh, some reservation by the residents who thought, oh, they think they're better than us, more educated, more, and they were, <laughs> in, the, in a sense, yeah. they were more educated and cultured. And peasant residents
0: of Steinbach. I mean, there's so much material as you as as you've said that we could probably go for another hour. But uh,
1: uh, yeah, this calls for uh, some other meeting over a bottle of wine.
0: Hey, sounds good. And I wanted to invite listeners who you know whose ears might have perked up at some of this, who might want to weigh into this whole conversation. You you can be in touch at our email address, which is afterthought at ckuw.ca. We'd love to hear from you. And Ralph, I just want to give you a big thanks for taking the time to... Uh, I know you had to put, look back at some of your some of your writings to prepare and all of that, so I really appreciate it. It's been nice talking to you.
1: Yeah, you are very welcome, Erica. And uh, as I say, I, I welcome the opportunity to review. Actually, it was good for me to go back and have another look at... at Different things, including my own book, which I hadn't looked at for quite a while. Right. So it was good that way. Um, I would also add, on a closing note, among, in all the aspects of Southern Manitoba history, we should not forget Abraham H. Weeb, 1892 to 1979, called the Licht von Bergfeld, the Light from Bergfeld. He got his Ph.D. in 1925 from the University of Wisconsin well, in that. biology and zoology, and his Ph.D. was the first Mennonite. Uh, in the East Reserve, probably your relative.
0: Who knows? Could be. There are so many <laughs> weeds <laughs> But but look at that, eh? That's interesting. Before we sign off for today, I just want to remind listeners that um, you can find out more about Ralph Friesen's books at his website, which is at one word, com. And also just reflecting on my original question, is there something in southern Manitoba Mennonite history that can provide some clues about apparent differences in ideology between, you know, what I grew up to believe as a person with Mennonite heritage and what we see in southern Manitoba uh, Mennonites, uh, specifically with regard to responses to the COVID-19 pandemic, and I do feel like I have a better understanding, even going back to uh, the time in Russia when this group of Mennonites in the 1870s deciding to leave Russia because they were afraid that some of their values were being threatened, whereas the ones that stayed, which would include my ancestors, decided to work with government and try and figure out a solution that would be satisfactory to everybody on these issues of having a separate school system and non-participation in the military. So they were a little bit more willing, as evidenced by that experience, to engage with the world around them. And then when that first group of uh, immigrants came to southern Manitoba, there were influences. There was uh, an evangelist that came from Chicago, John Holdeman also came coming from the States. Both of these people had a lot of influence uh, on the people as far as thinking more in terms of personal salvation as being the most important thing. And then ultimately, the Mennonites in southern Manitoba Uh, interestingly and curiously uh, did a U-turn in their thinking with regards to commerce and materialism. They went from thinking that all of this should be not acceptable to developing like a huge business center in southern Manitoba with, you know, a lot of wealth, a lot of big business and commerce. So those were all, uh, you know, interesting dynamics that do help to explain why there is sort of a suspicion of government and why there is perhaps more of an an emphasis on individual and personal freedom. That's about it for today. You've been listening to Afterthought on CKUW 95.9 FM and as a podcast on Apple and Spotify. I've been talking to Ralph Friesen today. Thanks a lot for listening and we'll talk to you again next time.